bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is a brief history of standards. Imagine a world without standards, even a day without standards. It would be quite difficult, if not impossible. Life would be unsafe and nothing would fit together. The number of standards that we encounter every day is considerable, whether it's on a journey to school or work, or doing some shopping online, or even as we're getting ready to take on the day. As you pull back the curtains in the morning to check the weather, there's BS644, a standard for timber windows. Getting dressed before heading downstairs for breakfast? Well, then there's EN13402, a standard for the sizing of clothes. Pulling up a chair at the kitchen table? Then there's ISO 7171, a standard for testing the stability of furniture. Taking the opportunity to move some money between bank accounts before you tuck into that muesli? Well, there's ISO 12812, a standard for mobile banking. And when you take that first sip of tea, there's ISO 3720, a standard for defining black tea. See previous episodes for all about that. We love tea. And when you finish that tea and get on your bike to cycle to work or to drop the kids at school, well, then you'd be benefiting from ISO 6699, a standard for bicycle handlebars, and ISO 4210, a standard for bicycle tyres, to name but two. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I am with... Cindy Parakill. Now, in this episode, we're going to take you on a journey through a brief history of standards. From ancient Greece to artificial intelligence, and to show you how it would indeed be impossible to imagine a world without standards. As we like to do on the podcast, we'll make some little detours along the way to tell you stories about a particular standard or little bits of standards history. One of these little detours includes the debut of a new feature, my favourite standard. So listen out for that. Yes, and we should stress from the off that this is a history and not the history, and that it's brief and by no means comprehensive. But before we get going, a reminder that for more information on BSI Education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSI EdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes or even ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. BSI publishes around 2,500 standards every year. And since we were created way back at the turn of the 20th century, we've developed over 40,000 British standards. But when you add to these British standards, European and international standards, the figure grows to over 100,000, covering pretty much every aspect of modern life that you can think of, and many more that you can't. BSI started on this best practice journey back in 1903 with, understandably, the standard BS1, more about which shortly. Now, it was the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that heralded the modern age for standards and the international structures and systems through which standards are made today. But the use of standards goes back much further than that. 
standards have been with us for a very long time. In classical Greece, a standard was developed to ensure the quality of the pins used for holding columns together. Both the Greeks and the Romans used standards for making bridges and aqueducts save structures. Standards were used in connection with the early days of trading. Pots, for example, although handmade, were produced in fairly uniform sizes, ensuring comparable measures. Coins were introduced in an attempt to have more standardized units of payment. Likewise, scales were standardized to avoid cheating in trade. The introduction of the metric system is thought to be among the first international standards facilitating the comparison of distances across country borders and the preparation of more accurate maps. But standards for products and services emerged at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, simplifying procurement and supporting trade and quality. And that's when things really began to take off, especially in Britain. Now, this is a story about a man called Sir John Wolfe Barry, as much as it is about the first British standard. Sir John Wolfe Barry was the man who built London's Tower Bridge. His eagerness to standardise engineering components at the start of the 20th century was spurred on by his work as a respected international consulting engineer and his close connections with the newly established National Physical Laboratory, which had started to set scientific and physical standards for Britain and its empire. Wolf Barry often attributed the deciding influence to his close friend, Scottish steel manufacturer John Strain. Strain's evidence to the UK Tariff Commission on the iron and steel trade confirmed that he had witnessed more efficient standardisation practice overseas, particularly in the United States. Now, steel was a relatively new material at the time, but the Americans were already using it in vast amounts for their new railway lines and emerging skyscrapers. The first meeting of the Institution of Civil Engineers' new Engineering Standards Committee took place in April 1901. What started as a single committee with sub-panels of leading engineers and industrialists focusing on norms for British transport and construction materials would eventually develop into the British Standards Institution with its hundreds of committees covering a vast range of standards. The first British standard, BS1, which defined standard rolled steel sections for structural purposes, was published in February 1903. Construction, shipping and transport were the biggest beneficiaries of this new standard. One of its most widely used applications was for tram tracks. The effect of the standard was to reduce the number of gauges being used from 70 down to 5. Eventually, the first six British standards to be published were for products from the steel industry. In fact, steel was the subject of 30 out of the first 110 British standards published. In 1929, the Engineering Standards Committee was granted a Royal Charter. A supplemental charter was granted in 1931, changing the name to the British Standards Institution. BSI was the world's first national standards body. 
But as we've said on the podcast before, standards are very much an international game. Indeed, BSI is now part of a European and global standards infrastructure. This includes CEN and CENELEC, the European Standards Organizations, with their 34 national members, created in 1961 and 1973, respectively. The International Electrotechnical Commission, or IEC, with its 89 national members and associate members, created in 1906. And the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, with 165 national members, formed in 1946. Predating them all, though, is the ITU, or International Telecommunication Union, dating back to 1865. It grew out of the need to deal with the issue posed by telegraph lines crossing national borders. Messages had to be stopped and translated into the particular system of the next jurisdiction. Today, the ITU allocates global radio spectrum and satellite orbits and develops the technical standards that ensure networks and technologies seamlessly interconnect. As an agency of the UN, its members are national governments and industry. It was during the 1920s and 1930s that standardisation started to grow, spreading to Canada, Australia, South Africa and New Zealand. Interest was also developing in the USA and Germany. In 1942, the British government officially recognised BSI as the sole organisation for issuing national standards. Yes, and it was during World War II that ordinary standards work was actually stopped and efforts were instead concentrated on producing over 400 war emergency standards. In fact, the relationship between civil and defence standards is something we're going to cover in a future episode. Do you want to know more about the role and purpose of standards in the modern world? Then BSI's free online course, The Power of Standards, is for you. Through its three modules, you'll learn about what standards are, why organizations use them, how they are made, and how and why people get involved in standards making. The course is designed to last around 30 minutes, but you don't need to complete it all at once. You can stop at any point and restart again later when you're ready. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. The immediate post-war period was one of huge change across the world. For standards, this period was about international consolidation and responding to something that was beginning to be recognised as the needs of the consumer. During this time, standards were published for subjects such as checking air pollution, nuclear energy and the carrying of live animals by air. In 1951, the Women's Advisory Committee was formed to advise on standards affecting the domestic consumer. This committee was the precursor of BSI's Consumer and Public Interest Network, or CPIN, which coordinates consumer representation on BSI's standards committees. For more information on CPIN, check out our Consumers and Standards series in the podcast feed. The 1950s onwards saw the beginning of the reconstruction of a new global economy, driven by the liberalisation of trade policies and the rise in consumer spending. Getting more stuff more quickly around the world became really important. 
We've all seen them. Row upon row of metal boxes lined up on docksides or on the back of huge ships traversing the oceans. Chances are, if you've ordered any product from overseas, then it would have travelled in one. Some have been used as trendy accommodation or emergency classrooms in far-flung parts of the globe. Or even, as in the case at the world-famous Hernhill Velodrome in South London, as colourful storage for hundreds of track bikes, my sons included. I am, of course, talking about the humble shipping container. A simple, yet effective, large metal box. Now, the use of shipping containers seems so commonplace now for transporting goods around the world that it's difficult to imagine things being done in any other way. But up until the 1950s, things were done very differently. Goods were transported in crates or bags of all different shapes or sizes. This made the placing of cargo in the hulls of ships time-consuming and goods just took up too much room. From the 1950s onwards, the world economy experienced strong growth. The flow of goods and semi-processed goods increased, as did the distance of transportation. However, the labour costs on ocean and in harbours formed a bottleneck in cargo handling, and the loading and the unloading of ships took too much time. Unitisation of containers was seen as the answer. Malcolm McLean, widely hailed as the inventor of the shipping container, was a road haulier. In 1935, McLean, along with his brother and sister, founded McLean Trucking Company. In the early 1950s, McLean saw an opportunity to cut costs and speed up the movement of goods. He thought a standard size box could be loaded off a truck, onto a ship and vice versa much faster. He sold his haulage company in 1956 and bought the Pan-Atlantic Tanker Company soon after. Now the proud owner of two World War II oil tankers, McLean started converting them into the world's first container ships. The first was the SS Ideal X. On her maiden voyage as a container ship in April 1956, she carried 58 containers from New Jersey to Texas. The containers were stackable and built with steel. Reinforced corners made it possible to stack the containers without causing damage. They were uniform in size, theft-proof and easy to load. Dock workers at the time, known as longshoremen, went on strike. They realised that loading containers onto ships would require a smaller workforce. It was this downtime that enabled McLean to refine his designs. McLean's big new idea was a success. He negotiated with the New York Port Authority to convert the New Jersey side of the harbour into a container port. The business would grow steadily over the next 10 years. But it wasn't until the 1960s that the containers would really take off. With the outbreak of war in Vietnam, the US military needed to get equipment to the troops quickly. They turned to McLean for the solution. His containers could be loaded up and sealed in the US, then shipped from port to port, loaded onto trucks and delivered to the troops. The empty containers were used to ship goods back to the US from ports in Japan. The idea spread. Following compromises among European and US railways, haulage companies and international shipping companies, in 1968, the standard ISO 668 
was introduced. ISO 668 classifies intermodal freight shipping containers and standardises their size and weight specifications. There are seven common lengths, ranging from 8 feet, or 2.43 metres, up to 53 feet, 16.15 metres. The simple idea of the ISO shipping container has had a huge impact on the world. Not only in the speed of loading goods on docksides, loading equipment and packaging, but also on the associated infrastructure, such as the height of tunnels, the width of vehicles, the design of ships, and the dimensions of boxes and pallets that go inside them. Today, ISO containers account for 90% of the containers used in global shipping. With containerization, harbour congestion was solved, and the concept of goods transportation was changed. It facilitated the flow of goods between sea, rail and road, right to your front door. Are you a postgraduate studying at a UK university? Do you have a research idea or project that involves standards in some way? Well, if so, BSI Student Research Programme can help. The way it works is simple. We gain valuable information about an area of interest to our standards work, while you can benefit from mentorship to support your project and the chance to gain knowledge and exposure that may increase your future employability. To find out more about the program, including case studies of previously supported projects and how to apply, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. Now, as we've said on the podcast before, standards are agreements between people about what good looks like, not only for products or services, but also for processes and systems. Now, if the 1950s and 1960s were about the development of international markets and the rise of consumer concerns, then the 1970s onwards were about the development of management system standards. During this period, BSI helped shape many of these standards. These included the three most widely adopted for quality, the environment and health and safety. In 1979, BSI published the UK's first quality management system standard, BS 5750. It led to the development of the ISO 9000 series of international standards used by millions of organisations globally. And in 1996, BSI published BS 8800, which would inspire BS OSAS 18001 and ultimately ISO 45001 for occupational health and safety management. And in fact, most recently, there has been a new addition to this family of standards with the publication of ISO 45003, the first global standard giving practical guidance on managing psychological health at work, something that has been really important during the COVID-19 pandemic. Another of these major management system standards was BS 7750, published in 1992, the world's first standard for environmental management systems. This inspired ISO 14001, which has helped organisations across the world improve their environmental performance. In the first of our new feature, My Favourite Standard, Daniel Mansfield explains why this particular one is so important to him. My favourite standard. Hi, my name is Daniel Mansfield and I'm Head of Policy Engagement at BSI. 
When I started at BSI quite a while ago now, I was in the editorial team. And so many standards from many, many sectors crossed my desk. Some were tiny, some very long, some amazingly complex and others were quite simple. I remember many about engineering applications and bits of buildings and even a standard once for garden forks, shovels and spades. There was one standard I edited, or it was an interim or fast track standard for degradable pulp kidney dishes used in hospitals, or as we called it, the standard for puke buckets. The standard I have to say is my favourite, however, is the one that, together with its wider family of standards, had a really formative effect on my career in standards, and that is ISO 14001, the standard for environmental management systems. After a couple of years in the editorial team, I made the leap to start managing standards committees, including a number of national committees working on the UK inputs to standards in the ISO 14000 series. So this was things like environmental labelling, environmental performance evaluation, that sort of thing. From there, I ended up supporting the UK delegations to the ISO technical committee responsible, and that was technical committee number 207, or 207 we called it. I'm not very good at remembering standard or committee numbers, but those numbers are, are imprinted on my brain. There'd been a UK secretariat for the subcommittee directly responsible for ISO 14001 itself. And after a couple of years of occupying the supporting role with the UK delegations and committees, a vacancy appeared. And then I was offered the leading role of the secretariat to the international subcommittee. It was then, and still is now, one of the most widely used standards in the world with millions of users and with certification businesses using it daily. So it was quite a position of responsibility and we were working on a revision which was, as ever, quite sensitive. But for me, those few years taught me so much about how international standards work, how consensus is built, how negotiations happen during the formal business of the meetings, but also in the coffee breaks and over dinners. The ISO 14000 series also taught me that standards can be about so much more than physical things or products, that they can encompass systems or organisations, and that at their heart, standards are really about the people who use them. I also have quite a fond memory of the travel. Remember that in international standards work, everywhere in the world is a long way for someone. And back in those days, not so very long ago, online and connected working was just not possible. After a few years, I took a promotion within BSI and handed the job on. Less travel was also good with a young family at the time. But the experience of working on 14001 has remained with me and informed so much of what I have done in standards making since that time. Our thanks to Daniel for sharing with us his story about why ISO 14001 is his favourite. We'll bring you more My Favourite Standards in future episodes. Now, since 2000, the focus for standards has shifted again and moved towards the issue of business potential. BSI has played a leading role in developing a new generation of standards to help organisations become better governed and more responsible. These have included standards on anti-bribery systems, organisational resilience and asset management. 
This period has also witnessed the development of innovations and technologies, with the potential to transform the economy and society. These include blockchain, advanced materials such as graphene, digital manufacturing and construction, nanotechnologies, connected and autonomous vehicles, cell therapy, sustainable finance, and artificial intelligence. Standards have a role to play in the commercialization of these new technologies, building trust and supporting the creation of new markets, both here in the UK and internationally. And not only that, things are changing with how standards are made. The process is becoming more agile, allowing standards to be developed with more rapid iterations. And things are also changing with how standards are used. We are moving towards standards which are machine applicable, readable and transferable, otherwise known as smart standards, marking the shift from a standard as a static document to something more dynamic that can be easily transferred into machine-readable format. A new era is most definitely underway. We hope you have enjoyed this brief history of standards. If you'd like to play your part in helping to write the next chapter in the history of standards, then visit bsigroup.com forward slash get involved. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production.